0: Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning, church. We ready for some more revelation. All right, the title of our sermon this morning is Vision of the Risen. Perfect. I actually changed the title last minute. That's why I turned around to make sure that... Otherwise, we're going to be on two different pages here. And so our text today is going to be Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. We're going to take a big bite of Revelation today, more than just three verses. Um, So um, let's be prepared for that. Let me pray for us. Uh, Heavenly Father, help us uh, by your Spirit, Lord, in your spirits to see this vision that's given to John um, that is so overwhelming and so overwhelmingly true. Lord, may we see it, understand it, um, live in the reality of the risen Christ, Lord. Um, Let our imaginations run wild. You chose this genre for a reason, and so give us an overwhelming vision, Lord, of exactly what John is talking about, Lord, because Jesus is awesome. Let us see that always, Lord. Amen. All right, so I'm going to read Revelation 1, verses 9 through 20 for us. And um, as I was saying while I was praying, uh, use your imagination. Like this is, I don't have pictures of what this looks like, so you really have to imagine what John is talking about here. And so starting in verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, to Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with the golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." So, uh, quite the overwhelming vision, right? The picture here. Um, And that number comes up again, right? Seven. Everywhere, sevens. And a lot more symbolism, as we will will see. So, let's go back, though, all the way back to verse 9 real quick, and I'll I'll just reread the first part of verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus... And so this is a wonderful summary of what it looks like to live the Christian life in the apocalypse. It summarizes the reality of those who submit to and follow the reign of Christ in a world where there are antichrists reigning, right? In a world that hates us. And it's going to be this way till the age to come that, that we live in a world of tribulation. As John says, he's already a partaker in this tribulation. We'll come back to that later. But what does tribulation mean? Pressure, trouble, affliction. Not good, right? Not not good things. There are many verses that highlight the fact in, in, that, that tribulation is part of the, the, the Christian way of life. That we should expect tribulation in our life. And so here's a couple of verses that talk about tribulation and persecution. For being a Christian. For example, Paul says in 2 Timothy, as he's telling Timothy, this young man, what to expect in being a Christian. Second Timothy 3:12, all those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Right? That's just the reality. Not maybe you're living for Jesus, at some point you you will face some sort of, of tribulation. Where did Paul come up with this idea? Christ Jesus himself. In John 15, verses 19 and 20, Jesus says, If you were of the world, the world would love you, love you as its own, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the world. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So what did they do to Jesus? Everything, up to killing him, right? Just, <clears throat> they took his very life. And Jesus is saying, well, if all they're going to do is put me down, try to stop me and, and kill me, do not expect any different. Do not be surprised that following me, you will, you will get the same result. And so then the question is, well, how does Jesus expect us to respond to a tribulation he expects us to go through, right? If that's his expectation, then then how are we supposed to to react to this? And our answer we find here, the answer is how John in this text reacts to tribulation. He does it with patience and endurance that are in Jesus. We are called to be partners with John, right? John says partners, You who are hearing this message will see it's given to the churches. And and John says, I'm a partner with you. Guys, us partnering together, we need to be patient. We need to endure. We need to be the kingdom in a world that hates us, that we will face tribulation. And so what are we to do? Church, partners, partners, Partners in the tribulation, partners with John, how are we supposed to react to tribulation? Patience, endurance and being faithful to the kingdom. Listen to the words of, of Jesus in Matthew 24:13, "The one who endures will be saved." Or Paul, again in Second 2 Timothy 2:12, 2, "If we endure, we will also reign with him." we're going to see this, this idea of endurance all throughout Revelation. What are we supposed to do? What does Jesus expect of us? What, what, what is the application of showing us these insane visions of beasts and dragons? What are we supposed to do when we see these things happen and we will see over and over? It is to be steadfast. It is to endure. He doesn't ever say attack. right? He's like endure what is happening because we will reign with him we will reign with the risen Christ. As we've talked about, Revelation is all about Jesus. And the fact is, we couldn't live for Jesus without Jesus. I mean, think about that. Who would want to be part of this kingdom? If I told you, hey guys, you guys want to join a new kingdom? Nobody could see it. Nobody's going to believe you. Right, And you have to be willing to die for this. Everybody's going to hate you. <laughs> right, You walk out those doors, everybody's going to hate you. They're going to persecute you. You're going to face tribulation. Who volunteers for that? No. Nobody's going to volunteer for that. Right. So, so why do we do that? I think if we're being honest, if we were offered the chance to be a kingdom of tribulation, we wouldn't accept it or we would leave it. I think we would go south. I think we'd go to the Magic Kingdom, right? Disneyland sounds awesome, right? Compared to everybody hating me with the expectation we will see in two weeks that someone might kill me? No, I want Space Mountain, right? That, that churros, that's a better option for me. So why would we do this? And the answer is in our text today, we do this because of Jesus. We do this because of the reality and the hope we have in the risen Christ, right? And I will say risen Christ all morning. If Christ didn't come from the dead, if he wasn't the firstborn of the dead, as Paul says, we're wasting our time. Let's go to Disneyland. But he did come back from the dead. And he's speaking to us through this. And so this is exciting. And so notice that John, as he read this passage, he mentioned his tribulation once, Yeah, I'm partaking in it. Does he sit there and talk about it? Do we know any details? We know one. But he says, I'm in tribulation. I'm partaking in it. And then the next 10 verses, 11 verses, sorry. He's talking about how awesome Jesus is. Yes, I'm in tribulation, but let me talk way more about how awesome Jesus is. This tribulation is nothing compared to the weight of this vision that I'm experiencing. Don't pay attention to the fact that that I'm physically under tribulation. Pay attention to the fact that Christ is risen. And it says here, he's on this island, he's exiled here because tribulation. I don't know how long, what this system looked like in the day, how long before they just tell you, go to this island right? I'm assuming there was a lot of steps there that were very uncomfortable, but he ends up on this island where it's not like us today, you know, we don't have cute wall calendars with cats on them or, or iPhones, and so who even knows what day it is? John. I don't know how, but I don't know if he just memorized when he went to the island what day it was, but he knows it is the Lord's day. Even in prison with no clocks, no calendars, he knows it's the Lord's day, which is most likely Sunday. And he has this experience in verses 10 and 11. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And so, church, why did John write Revelation? Anybody? Why did John write Revelation? He was told to? Did I hear it? Yes, Jesus told him to. Why does Revelation exist? Because Jesus says, we will see twice a day. write this down. Like, yes, this is cool, you're going to see this, but write this down. It's going to benefit people 2,000 years from now in Bakersfield. Write this down. And so he has, John has this all uh, I just imagine sensory exploding experience that, that he goes through here, encountering the risen Christ. Now I want to do one thing real quick because I want to skip ahead to verse 17 because I want verse 17 to frame us going through 9 through 20. And so verse 17, he's in the middle of this encounter, this experience with Jesus, and he says, <clears throat> When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead as we all would. Don't think you wouldn't fall as though dead, right? But he, Jesus, laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. Fear not. Hmm. In the middle of tribulation, in the middle of a prison sentence where he's probably not running the prison, he's not the most popular guy, in the middle of an overwhelming vision of the risen Lord being taken into the the throne room of God, Jesus is saying, fear not. And this is interesting because, as we've talked about a couple of times already, when people preach revelation, they preach fear. Right? You hear a sermon on Revelation, like I did when I was was a child, I was scared to death. And so people preach fear, the number of the beast, all this stuff, be afraid. But church, we are faithful to Jesus, and Jesus gives us the emotional expectation and command to revelation. And it's not fear. It's fear not, right? Fear not is how we respond to what, if we admit it, there's a reason Jesus is starting by saying fear not, we're going to read the rest of Revelation like, what? This is terrifying. But Jesus has already told us, fear not, Now we'll go back to verses 12 and 13. After John heard this trumpet-like trumpet voice, to write this down, it says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of them lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And so we find two truths right off the bat. Why should we endure? Why should we be patient? Why should we not fear? Well, verse 12 says he was in the midst of the lampstands. Does anybody remember Lamps Plus, the star? I I hate that I think about that when I read this verse, but being in the midst of lamps. If you guys don't know, Lamps Plus was a lamp star. It's all it was, right? There's just lamps everywhere. So I always imagine that. He's standing um, in the midst of a bunch of lampstands. Not the same type of lampstands, of course, but... But praise God, this is one of the few times in Revelation where I think because this can be a difficult symbol, because lampstands are mentioned all throughout the Old Testament, and I think it would be difficult, quite frankly, you know, to look at passages like Zechariah or Daniel, these passages about lampstands that mean different things. And so rather than us speculate incorrectly, I think Jesus knows, I better just tell them this one, right? Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. And so at the last part of verse 20, it says the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So throughout the Bible, lampstands do have different symbolic meaning. But Jesus is telling us these lampstands are the seven churches. Why are the churches lampstands? Because they hold up the light of Jesus, right? They're holding up the light. Of course they're lampstands. But does that mean, church, that we are a lampstand? We are if we're holding up the light of Jesus. If we're proclaiming the gospel, then yes, we are a lampstand. If we do not proclaim the gospel to Bakersfield and to our families, friends, coworkers, our children, if we are not proclaiming the gospel, then we are not a lampstand. Now, it's going to be very convicting here in, in two weeks um, when we look at the church of Ephesus because jesus tells them hey write to to their angel and tell them i'm going to take away your lampstand right so it's not like once you're a church you're always a church and so there's going to be that thread if you don't shine the light of jesus you all don't need a lampstand right so we always want to shine the gospel and be a lampstand in the presence of jesus But I do believe that we do love Jesus, and we do want his light to shine, which means that we are his temple, which means that he dwells among us. And so talk about confidence. The point of this vision with the lampstands is, well, if you're a lampstand, Jesus is here. Like, I know our minds can't wrap around that, but if we're proclaiming the gospel, then Jesus is here with us. This is what it says. We are in his presence. In some way, shape, or form this morning, in a way that we can't comprehend, we are in the throne room. Like Jesus is among us. And I hope that encourages you. You know, it maybe changes the way that we think about worship. That not only are we doing this for him and to him, but that he would actually be faithful and be here. And so he isn't absent from our tribulation. Right? He's not like, oh, I already went through that. I'm just going to be in heaven. like I'm living my best life, but you guys can go through tribulation. It's like, no, he's here. And he takes it personally. He takes it personally. We'll, we will see this. He understands because, church, the risen Christ is also our sympathetic high priest. The risen Christ is our sympathetic high priest. And here's another Son of Man reference. Uh, I, I didn't write this down, but let me just take a, make a side um, note here. As you read the Revelation, I'm not sure on the little copies that you guys have, you will find cross-references to your verses. <clears throat> Maybe in your normal Bible you do. There are thousands, hundreds to thousands of them. We are not going to touch on every one. Right? We, it, this, it would be ten years to get the Revelation if we hit every cross reference. During the week, as we go through a passage, go back and look at the cross-references of everything. Your mind will be blown when you see how the Bible weaves together and finds its culmination in Revelation. It, it is beautiful and wonderful, but um, we are not going to hit every cross-reference here. Um, That's to say, I'm immediately going to do a cross-reference, which is, um, I'll just mention Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel 7, Jesus mentions, or mentions that Jesus is the Son of Man. We've talked about before that Jesus loves this term, son of, son of man. It's his favorite title. Like when I see him, I'll, I don't know, I'll probably fall as though dead, but I'll be like, son of man, right? Because I know he likes that name, right? It's like calling me Captain Awesome, right? I like that. <coughs> Why is it his favorite title? Why is it in this vision that Jesus looks like the son of man? Human, right? I mean, he looks human, you would think, okay, once Jesus gets to heaven, he could look like anything. He's God. Why choose to look like the Son of Man, to look human? And I think that's because he's showing his love for us. He's showing his identity with us. He's reminding us, reminding everyone in heaven about that mission that he did to save us. That he put on human flesh. He didn't have to do that. God didn't have to become human, yet he did that. And he's, he's excited about that. And he shows that off, even in heaven, in his glory. He wants people to know this. He was so excited to do this for us. And not only is he among us, he's not among us just abstractly. He's among us as a son of man, as someone who understands what it's like to be where we are. So what is he doing in this verse? What is he doing in this verse? Well, he's wearing priestly clothes, right? He's wearing priestly clothes. Now, we am not going to hit every cross-reference and do a map or um, illustration, but <clears throat> now, the book of Revelation, um, it's different kinds of genres. We've talked about that, but not one of them is fashion, right? The whole point of this vision is, what are they wearing in heaven this morning, right? So John's point isn't like, what are they wearing? So whenever John in Revelations mentions what some, someone is wearing, it's important. Take note of what they're wearing. And he is wearing a priestly outfit here. Which means if he is among us, and he is, and he's wearing priestly outfits, he's ministering. He is ministering to us. He is ministering with us. Which means every difficult conversation we have about the gospel, um, as we set up tables, right? As we push tables around, Jesus is with us. He's doing ministry with us. We're not doing it alone to a faraway God. He is with us as the Son of Man, you know, showing his humanity, but dressed as the priest, he shows up doing ministry, not just accepting ministry. He ministers to us in our tribulation because Jesus, like no other, knows what it's like to serve God under tribulation. Right? If anybody ever could have been stressed out or walked away, right? Now we find this truth in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so Jesus went through tribulation. He knows. We know what it feels like to share the gospel and to be rejected. We know what it is to not get a promotion or a job because of our faith. You know, some people lose their lives over their faith. Jesus knows. He's not just sitting on his throne removed. He understands, right? That's who, I'm not going to say who the writers of Hebrews is this morning, but his point of that was, like, Jesus knows. When we pray to Jesus... He doesn't just hear us. Like, he knows what we're saying. This is hard. Jesus says, Yeah, I know. Fear not. Right? That's Jesus' response. Yes, it's hard. But you don't have to be afraid. You could be miserable. You could be sad. You could be in pain. If something hurts, it hurts. He's not saying don't be hurt. He's saying don't be afraid. Do not fear. And Jesus, like no other priest, can tell you to fear not. I can tell you to fear not, but I don't have the authority to make you fear not. I don't even know if I could persuade you with all my charm to, be, to fear not if you are afraid. But Jesus can. Why? Because as a priest, Jesus, he can guarantee you he's going to get you to God. Right? He already knows. We're going to see that through this text. He knows, he, as your priest, he's not just going to talk about God. He is God. He's going to get you there. When he says fear not, he does that as somebody who knows what's going to happen and knows you do not have to be afraid. In Hebrews chapter 7, verses 24 and 25, it says, Be he holds his priesthood permanently. Jesus is a priest, even in heaven, because he continues forever. So if Jesus is a priest, he is, and he lives forever, Jesus is our priest forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always makes intercession for them. So he is our present pre- priest who knows he is going to get you all the way there. Right? He's going to preach the gospel, which is his message, and through faith in him, he's going to get you to heaven to be with him. And so when he says fear not, he does so with complete priestly authority. Now, John makes some more observations about the appearance of Jesus. In verse 14, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like flames of fire. Intimidating, right? Like the white hair, I'm like, okay, that doesn't sound too bad, but like eyes of fire? No, that's intimidating. That's very intimidating. But we see... Some truths here. The risen Christ is perfectly pure and wise. The risen Christ is perfectly pure and wise. This is because he is God. Now, this description again finds its its truth in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. Awesome. is that verse about Jesus? No. That verse is about God the Father. But it's describing Jesus, right? So John uses this description to talk about Jesus. Why is that? All throughout Revelation, we're going to see that God the Father and Jesus are going to, all the imagery is going to point to the fact that they are one. And this is huge. This is where even today in the Christian faith, our view of Jesus, is Jesus God, separates us from most religions of the world. And all throughout Revelation, John is going to do this. Why is he describing Jesus like he's God the Father? Well, the same reason, uh, well, your family looks like you, right? He's God. That's just it. And so, white, of course, um, symbolically is, is purity, holiness, no darkness, no, no corruption. And the white hair represents wisdom. Now, that does remind me one of my pet peeves. I've got to be careful not to go off on some rant. <clears throat> In cartoons, whenever they portray God, or not whenever, often, they portray God, it sounds kind of like this, white robe, white hair, you know, long white beard, but they always make God look old, right? He always has a cane, he's always hunched over, like he's on the, on the back end of eternity. And I hate that, because it's wrong. God isn't old, he's eternal. And so, since day one, God has been perfect, perfectly eternal who god is is in a perfect state of who god is forever like beyond anything we can conceive of god isn't getting old right? god doesn't have a cane god is as perfectly god as he ever was i just noise me when i see god the old man imagery and john here also mentions i think the more intimidating part um, which is his fiery eyes like flames of fire which points to the, fi- the fact that the risen Christ sees all the risen Christ sees all and there, there are three realities to these, these fiery eyes that I think we could take courage from although the last thing I know I think of when I see fiery eyes is courage Right? it's like no let's run the other direction the first is that no sin will escape the holy omniscient gaze of Christ Right. And that's the one that I think comes up first. Like that's the reality. Woe is me. And so all sin is seen by Jesus. All sin is judged in the fiery eyes of Christ. And so some of that for his followers, it's you know, we are judged on the cross. Our sin is judged on the cross, it's seen, it's judged, and then for everybody else, it'll be judged on judgment day. But all sin is seen. Like, there's no sin that, that, that nobody gets away with anything. If you ever read Psalm 9 like, and 10? Nobody's getting away with anything. Second, he sees the patient endurance, patience, endurance, and faithfulness of his people. And so he sees when we do good. There's not a lot of people like that in the world, is there? It's like they only, they only see when we do bad, right? And so Jesus sees when we do good. And we, we will see that in chapters two and three as he talks to the churches and encourages them. And he says, I see what you do, what you do right. I'm acknowledging that. I see it. I love it. Jesus accepting your service. And then as we go through each of the seven churches, each, each church ends with a, with a sort of reward because God sees. And he's going to reward you. And those rewards are going to be awesome. We're going to have so much fun ending seven, those seven sermons with like this possible reward for being faithful, being patient and enduring. Now, third, he notices the injustices done to his people. He sees those who are on the other side of tribulation, right? You will face tribulation. He sees that. He sees those who are, I don't know the other word of tribulation, tribulating people, right? He sees the other side of that. And it is not good, Because he keeps score. Goodness gracious. One of the most touching and terrifying visions of Revelation is when we see Jesus dressed in all white later on, except for the fact he has the blood of the martyrs on him. What does that mean? Is he just dirty? Oh, he forgot to to wash in holy water. No. It's personal. He's wearing it. He's wearing that blood like... He's kept score. He is going to deal with people, those people in your life you think are getting away with something. No, he's keeping score. He's not coming as baby Jesus, right, crying in a manger. He's coming with judgment and he knows those who have been mean to his people. It's going to be personal. Talk about terrifying it's one thing to sin it's another thing just to sin against those who are, who, are, who are trying not to sin and talking about Jesus you don't mess with somebody's bride ever right you don't mess with somebody's bride and so you don't mess with the church it is going to be personal and so we can endure with patience church because we know that Jesus sees everything right he sees every sin that we do that everyone does he sees those who sin against us and he's keeping score he's keeping score because there's going to be rewards and there's going to be some serious personal judgment now let's keep reading in verse 15 his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace and his voice was like the roar of many waters. All right, two more truths we're going to discover here. The risen Christ is uh, tested and refined. Tested and refined and still standing. And so, burnished bronze refined in a furnace. What's up with that? Right? That's a difficult one. And so, um, there is some Old Testament passages that... The vision of God, there is, there is bronze feet. But what, what, what does it symbolize specifically to them? The fact that they're glowing coming out of the furnace symbolizes judgment. I mean, think about it. It's metal. It's bronze. And the language is a little different. It's not just bronze. That's why it kind of says burnished bronze. Like super ultimate premium refined ultimate metal is what it's talking about. It says some serious metal feet. That are very bronze ish looking. This means that he was tested. This means that he was judged. This means when he was on the cross, he experienced the fiery judgment of God. He experienced all of the fiery judgment of God. He was completely tested and refined. You know, it's something I I realized I hadn't really thought about as Jesus takes on my sin or took on my sin. And went to the cross. All of our sin, it was burned out of him. We don't think about that. Like the judgment of God, whether it was a literal flame, it was the judgment of God that was completely upon him. He hung on the cross carrying all of our sin. And then when he said it was finished, "That's a I," as we've talked about before, it is finished. The sin was removed from him. In that, on the cross our sin. He was refined. All the sin of everyone who who believes in him, he was judged in such a way so extreme that all of that sin was removed from him, right? It had to be. He said, it's finished. And, And we know that his sacrifice was accepted because he comes back from the dead, right? He is our living atonement. And so he was refined. And so this is a reference to that. It's like he's standing on these feet of someone who's just been through the worst possible thing anybody could have ever been through. And he's come out perfectly looking, awesomely burnished, bronze, shining, glowing metal. Perfectly refined, perfectly tested. This is the person that we want to stand with. There's nothing worse that can happen to anybody ever. All right. And he's on our side. Praise God. So we need not fear tribulation. Because as we read in James, when we face tribulation, what does he say? Count it all joy, right? Count it all joy. It's going to make us better. It's going to make us more like Jesus. I'm not saying you're going to end up with with bronze feet. But it's going to make us more like Jesus. It's going to make us more holy. It's going to refine us. In these verses also, we see that the risen Christ speaks to us Powerfully. The risen Christ speaks to us powerfully. Now, the voice of Jesus was already compared to a loud trumpet and the roar of many waters, which, if you've been near one body of water, it's loud, many waters, pretty loud, right? And so, and I have no doubt that, that uh, John is just thinking of the loudest sounds he could, could think of. I don't know what the comparison would be today, but very extremely loud is is what he hears. And the whole point is that it's loud and it's unignorable. It's loud. You have to probably shaking reacting to it. And so this morning, we don't hear the voice of the Lord loudly, not in a way we could measure or, or compare to some loud sound in our culture, but nonetheless, it is just as unignorable. And so don't confuse its loudness with its, the fact that it's still unignorable, that it's still speaking to our lives in such a magnitude that just the words of the Bible can transform your life, right? Transform your, yourself spiritually. And so I, I love this part. There's two ways the text tells us that he speaks to us loudly. And they're both in the next verse, which is verse 16. In his, in his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Okay, well, how is that two ways to talk to us? The risen Christ speaks to us powerfully through stars and sword. Stars and sword. Which I'm convinced it would be an awesome church name. you imagine that logo? Yeah. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Sounds awesome, right? One of those great visuals. And praise God again, he gives us the answer in verse 20, what this means. Because I think that would be another difficult one. I guess, again, the grace of God. Guys, here's a little cheat on this one. help you out. Verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches, as we already looked at. So the stars are angels. And so, according to this verse, each church has an angel. Well, that sounds kind of cool, right? There could be a vanguard angel. <coughs> it sounds cool. Um, but it's one of those issues where this verse can be translated two different ways. That's it. One of two different ways. And so I don't think that it's an angel. I don't think it's an angel. In fact, I would go as far as to say, well, that's depressing. We don't get our own angel. I I, I would go out on a limb here and say, church, we have many angels. So don't be bummed that we might not have the one vanguard angel. I, I believe we have plenty of angels on our side so the word here for angel I think we've talked about before is angelos in this verse it's angeloi so masculine plural why would it be masculine plural for, for angel and what does angel mean? it means messenger right? and so does it have to be translated angel <coughs> like angelic being like we see with all the eyes, wings, fire all that is that what he's talking about here? I don't think so. Now let, let, let's make the argument that it is an angelic being. Why would that make sense? Well, this is the heavenly vision. Like if there was one point in the Bible where you'd, you'd assume there would be like angel angels, be in Revelation. The book of Revelation contains half of all angel references in the entire Bible. Lots of angels, so this, this could absolutely be like an angelic angel. And if you want to believe that, again, that is fine. And if I'm wrong and that's true, awesome, vanguard angel. Like, who's, not, who's going to be upset about that? However, I believe, as I believe uh, a majority, maybe it's a slight majority, of scholars and pastors believe that this is talking about pastors or, or preachers. I know I heard a couple sermons from other Five Stones pastors who, who came to the same conclusion. And so let me make my argument Don't believe me just because I want you to call me an angel, right? That's not the point of this. It just makes more sense that this is a pastor or a preacher in several ways. One, what could John tell an angel that Jesus couldn't? Why would Jesus tell John to go tell the angels something? Could you imagine being an angel John talking to? Like, Jesus, do you know this, you're humans talking to me. Right, it's an odd chain of command here, and so it just it doesn't seem to make sense. What makes more sense is I believe because it says like in His right hand. I believe as as we've seen in this text, Jesus says twice, "Write this down, John. Write this down and give this message to the churches." Right in His hand, showing. Right? That, that, that God is surrounded by the churches, but he's saying, give this message to the messengers, to the messengers in my hand, give this message. I think it just makes more sense because in chapters 2 and 3, every letter to a church, it says they address it to the angel of uh, Ephesus, Thyatira. That's what it says, to the angel of. Well, it's like, oh, Kent, but why would Jesus tell John to go write something? Like John speaks angel, like he's going to write something to the angels. And then if you follow the chain of command, the angel would just have to turn it back and just give it right back to John, right? Because John's the one on earth. And so I just think um, translation-wise, this is what it's saying, that he's giving it to the messengers of the churches who are going to preach this because as we already looked at, the blessing is in the reading of Revelation, remember? Like you want to hear it, understand it, and obey it, and you're blessed to do that, an angel having a piece of paper with a message from God isn't a blessing to us. A blessing to us is John then giving this to the messenger in each church and the messenger reading it, saying, hey, God, notice this. This is good. This is bad. Why? An angel wouldn't benefit from that information. The church would. The church would be blessed, which is why I believe that the angels here are our pastors and preachers. And I don't do that just arrogantly for you to, to look at me as being heavenly, not by any means. I'm just saying I think that's the way to interpret this because I think it's quite practical. We should have patience and endurance in tribulation because God has given us his message. Jesus gave a message to us. That's why we're supposed to endure. That's why this is the response. Why, Why would Jesus say, hey guys, fear not. John is giving the angels this message. No, fear not. Look at me telling you all these things about me. I am God. I am in charge. I am your priest. I am among you. Right? And so we can be patient and we can endure and we could not be afraid during tribulation. God is telling us, well, he's God. And so what about the sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus? The sword coming out of the mouth of the risen Christ is the word of God. It is the Bible, right? Two-edged sword. What does that mean? Well, because it depends on what side you're on, right? Is that sword dangerous? Well, is it going away from you or towards you? So what's a two-edged sword? For, for one, it is salvation to the believer, right? That the sword went away from us and hit Christ. Salvation, the judgment of God went on Christ for us. So we are saved. But what about the other people who aren't saved? that sword is still going to fall on them. They didn't put their trust in Christ to take that, that blow. In the Bible, we encounter God. I think that's why this verse says, like the sun's shining. We encounter the face of God. If you want to know what God is like, who he is, you read the word, you listen to the word. It's this overwhelming experience. Again, like the, the face of the sun. Well, how do we feel about the sun? Well, sometimes it's great. You get warm, right? If you're cold, the sun feels good. There's warmth to it, you know, a nice beach day. But if you're on the surface of the sun, not so good, right? And so we see this encounter where it's dual. It is the word of God, but it's two-edged. It is absolutely two-edged. How we respond to the word of God determines whether we are protected by that sword and rule with the person wielding that sword, or if we're going to fall under judgment. And so we can have comfort during tribulation because we have this message. We have the word of God being given to us by angels, by preachers, telling us this. Now let's read on verses 17 and 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Which I don't know how many keys are on your key ring. Jesus has a cooler key ring than you do. Death and Hades. And so this point, the risen Christ is risen. Right, the risen Christ is risen, otherwise, we've talked about it before. Nothing else matters. This is the risen Christ he's experiencing post-cross, post-resurrection. That is why we have hope. He's the firstborn of the dead. That's why, as we looked at last week, that's what leads into this. He's the firstborn of the dead, and then we see this vision. People thought he was dead. This is where he is, he's awesome. He'll make you die just by looking at him. He's so awesome. So there's a couple of things to see here. And one is the risen Christ is God eternal. When he says he's the first and last, it is no coincidence that that sounds very much like he's the Alpha and the Omega. Well, who said that? God the Father. And so both times in Revelation where God the Father speaks, only twice, and he says, I am the Alpha and Omega, immediately afterwards, you will hear Christ say something like this. Just echo it. Why? Because he's God, right? Again, it, it, it's there. And in fact, if you combine all these sayings between God the Father and Jesus, the Alpha and Omega, Omega, first and last, you know, beginning and end, you come to the number seven. There's seven sayings like that between the two of them. Because Jesus is God. He's encountering God. Which means he set everything in motion. He knows what is happening and he knows how it is going to end. So fear not. He is the living one. He's going to be alive forever. Which means he is also the death conqueror. He said to John, dude, I died. I straight up died. But behold, look how awesome I am now. Like everybody thought they killed me but I am so alive that I will never die. That's how alive I am right now, John. Fear not. No one's ever going to be as live, more alive as I am. He is on the other side of what we fear. Right? We fear death. If we think about it. What can hurt us? What can we fear? Well, it's death. And Jesus is on the other side of death saying, hey, fear not. Like, what are they going to do to you? Kill you? And then what? Be with him? Is that all I can do, is kill you? The risen Christ is our living, living atonement. He is the death conqueror who holds the keys to death in Hades. He's the living one. He's the risen one, which means he also has the coolest set of keys. He's the living key holder. The defeat of death gave Jesus the keys to death in Hades. This could be a whole sermon. Maybe this will be our Easter sermon. I don't know. But man, there is so much, so much stuff to talk about there, but we're going to stay compact here. He has access, right? The guy who has keys has access. You want to know the guy who has the keys. And so I think the only thing that's difficult to understand here is, well, what's death in Hades? Right? It's like, why isn't it heaven and hell? What is death in Hades? So... Uh, I'll give you the short, short, not 10-week version of explaining this, because words change over time, and so in this context, which is what's important to us, what do these means these words mean to us this morning, as it meant to them that morning? Death is physical. Everybody will die unless you're here at the second coming. Everybody will die. So death is the physical element. Hades is the spiritual or immaterial part of this. So there actually isn't a mention of heaven here. And so he's talking about being alive forevermore. He's talking about conquering death. And so what he's saying is everybody's going to die and then you will face judgment and go into Hades. Hades is bad. Hades is the opposite of heaven in this. Now, Hades is used in other parts of the Bible, not referring to to wickedness or to hell. But in this context, that's what he is saying. The point is, Jesus has access. If you don't want to go to Hades, Jesus is the guy to see. He's the guy with the keys. And he has access, an access that he gives to us, that he offers to us in faith, right? Do you believe? Do you believe what? Everything I just said. I, I, I went, I, my, I was refined, I took on sin, I... I atoned for sin, I was tested, I died. That's why he starts by saying, John, I died, John. I died. Do you remember, John? Remember when I died? Not anymore. I'm on the other side. Right? So he's saying, fear not. Worst case, I'll see you on the other side. There's nothing to fear. Now, I want to end this morning by quickly looking at verse 19 where uh, Jesus, the risen Christ says, write therefore these things that you have seen those that are and those that are to take place after this and so we have another time frame reference right, this is important because I've had many of you come to me and tell me you've never even heard of anything other than revelation as some futuristic will happen someday to some people event well, we already looked at verse 9 where John said he's already a partaker in the tribulation, right? That has to end the conversation right there. Something can't be future that John was, taking, was already experiencing in that moment can't be completely future. And now Jesus tells John to write it down, the things that he saw, this vision, right? And so these things that he saw, these, these things that he, that he saw in the vision are really things that apply to the past. They apply to the Old Testament. All these things that were fulfilled in Christ in the past that, that find th- their, their ultimate place in Christ, fulfillment in Christ. Write down what is happening now. Right? Write down what is happening now. The things that are, those that are. And so the things that, that are happening, he's in it, he's in tribulation. And I believe this is where we would be right now the things that are, but then he says, write down the things that are going to take place. And so this is the framework we've been talking about since the beginning, right? I didn't make it up, right? So that makes you feel good, right? I didn't make it up. (laughs) And so we see it right here. John has said, I'm already in the tribulation. And Jesus is saying, write down these things you saw, the things that are, and then the things that are going to take place. That is the frame we're, we've been operating in and that we will continue to operate in, that it's happening in those three places. The apocalypse is now. The tribulation is now. The risen Christ is reigning now. He is ministering to us through, through stars and sword, through pastors and his word, telling us how to be his kingdom, how to be patient and to endure And while we don't have to fear encountering Christ in a way that's just going to make us fall over dead, like we're not going to have our senses blown away, we are, as priests of the risen Christ, which we talked about last week, he made us priests, we are to tell other people about this. We don't have to be scared. We don't have to fear not, because he's talking among the lampstands when he says, fear not. He's talking with the stars in his hands, fear not. Fear not. Everybody outside of that, fear. Absolutely you should fear. That's the gospel. You should fear. You have no idea. Judgment is absolutely coming. They need to fear the one who has the keys to death and Hades. And they need to enter the kingdom through the risen Christ. Let me pray. Lord, you are awesome. I thank you for the privilege Lord, not that I would ever call myself an angel, Lord, but that's just the text today. Um, The privilege of of delivering the message of your word, I love it so much, as we all do. It, It is just so exciting, praise provoking, Lord, this message to us. But honestly, in the middle of the week, Lord, I don't think I speak for myself when I say I face fear. I look at the coming tribulation in our world, in this country. It's already happening around the world to other partakers and our other brothers and sisters. I see it happening here, and there's part of me that fears for my family, for, for what my children and their children, in the world they're going to live in. And so I ask, Lord, for your spirit, Lord, your perfect sevenfold spirit to minister to us, to comfort us in our fear and deliver us from it. Because you say, fear not. Fear not. You hold the keys to death in Hades. What do we have to fear, Lord? Let us live with joy in serving you as priests, Lord, and telling other people they'd be wise to fear, Lord. And we ask, Lord, for those who aren't among us, partakers in the apocalypse, Lord, in Bakersfield, around the world, that they would find the gospel today, this week, that much should be made of Jesus. We ask this for the glory of Jesus. Let Vanguard bring you glory, Lord. Thank you for revelation. What an awesome book, Lord. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.